I know now what I want to say in my intro for my podcast. I'm going to start with a warning to other creatives. Create like it's your last podcast, last graphic, last painting, last blog post. There's so many forces out there that want us to be bland, and that is not possible with this fro. I have too many thoughts about celebrating us, reading what I want to read, pointing out donkeys, what links us together and shouldn't tear us apart. I also give you bonus content through Ten Fro's Bar on my Patreon and if you become a melanated nerd. I also will share content about getting the real tea on reality TV. Join me in this episode of Tim Froh is reading for the wild ride. And thank you for listening. I am just happy with the changes I've been able to make in my podcast. I am working on making the podcast itself, um, the recording atmosphere, making it as quiet as possible to make sure that um, there's not a lot of background noise, um, as well as using a pretty good microphone sitch that is also allowing me to modulate my voice and keeping an eye to make sure I'm within a range. But sometimes it's hard, y'all, because I get excited and I start yelling. And I want, and I always am excited to being able to report positive uh, momentum as far as my glow up is concerned. I contacted my main platform that I published on Podbeam um, and the people at the help desk were instrumental in doing something like refreshing the podcast. So, um, and because I was, I was watching my downloads increase because I'm well over 2,000, 200,000. Boop, 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 boop. Yes, I've been watching Sonia Richardson Ross on Real Housewives of Atlanta, but that's a whole different part of the segment. But anyways, I've watched it vastly and rapidly approach 300K, but I wasn't, hadn't received since January any new advertisers. Um, and there was, it was like I was doxxed for some reason. But since I had that discussion with the people at the help desk at Podbeam, now I'm getting the impressions. It's reflective in if I have 3,000 listeners, new individual unique listeners per month, and the downloads are going crazy, why am I not seeing any advertising revenue? And it is as if um, my podcasts, I mean, there's billions of podcasts out there, but why is it such that the ones that are submitting to Podbeam are not seeing my podcast? There's something in, the, I'm, I guess I'm caught up in some type of algorithm or some type of computer glitch but now I'm seeing really dope advertisements when you listen to, but it's a trigger. The podcast listeners or downloads have to reach a certain level even before, even with programmatic insertion, 
it has to reach a certain level before they will the computer will even sense and insert those um, advertisements at the certain points. And it appears that the midpoint is the most lucrative. I'm just glad now that whatever they did on the back end, my listeners can not only get access to really dope services through the advertisements, um, as well as my episodes are getting out to the general masses and people may notice me and maybe it'll end up and I'll have a sponsorship uh, that make it more easier to basically take care of the front end between graphic design as well as continuing to edit um, the sound through sound primordial sound archives. Um, Raf, Raphael Crump at AK Productions is dope. Um, navigate to Tim Froh's Reading YouTube channel or the Dale's Angels Inc. YouTube channel to see his uh, clips for each episode. It's like I can describe it and he makes it happen. And it's and it seems like each time is just funnier and funnier. Was well, funnier and funnier to me, but then I have a weird sense of humor. I'm just happy that I'm able to continue to do this. I'm an indie podcaster. I have, I'm, I'm able to use my creative, this is my creative outlet, it's therapy to me. I get to listen to dope stuff, I get to read dope stuff, and then I get to comment on it to people and I'm allowed to just continue to do that. So anytime anybody wants to hear more or even greater, you need to basically do a couple of things, become a patron, drop me a tip, um, and then just allow me and Ethel to go on our merry way, eating ramen and talking about stuff and glowing up. And also finding out what is available for my lettuce grow because I'm also finding that I'm having a lot of fun growing things and then making things with what I'm actually growing, um, decreasing my personal carbon imprint. It's pretty dope, y'all. And I'm allowed to do all of these things um, because I get to think outside of the box as I create my podcast. Continue to listen and thank you for listening. So I'm still reading All Boys Are Blue and I came up with a interesting dichotomy. I, as this, the author uh, found himself or was finding his, who, what his, not only his gender identity, but just who he was as a person. Um, he talked about his time in junior high when he went to an all black high school. And the school was named after a commerce um, secondary, secretary, uh, the first black commerce secretary that died in a tragic plane crash. Um, and he relates the history that he received up to that point in the public school system that was essentially whitewashed um, and how he came to realize how uh, for African-Americans, Abraham Lincoln was one of the greatest presidents to ever live. Uh, he freed the slaves. And I had heard niggles of this uh, all throughout my life and definitely as I became an adult, but I never really took a deeper dive. I did take U.S. history 
um, up through high school, and I can't remember. I did take world history and some other like Western Civ, but a deeper dive into American presidents or our history, as it were, uh, was essentially there was a void in my education um, up until now. And I only got this uh, through not just my discussions with Kathy Nichols, but also um, just by reading this particular book. And I've had to reconcile who I was always taught as honest aid, as lying racist aid. I think you can still admire certain parts of someone's presidency or what they did or how he led us through one of the most disruptive periods in American history and still recognize and talk about that they said some pretty jacked up shit. And I wouldn't receive that until I read a non-binary author's book, All Boys Aren't Blue, and his discovery of all the truths and untruths about the American experience, Abraham Lincoln. Also, even though he was vehemently against slavery, he was straight up gangster and basically said that he still was a white supremacist. He was, even though he didn't wear a hood, he still believed in those ideals. He was no different than any white man during those periods. And the whitewashing and the elevation to angelic that people want, or sainthood that people want to make of Abraham Lincoln, y'all need to stop tripping because he was no saint. He was a man of his period. He was a white racist in his stance. He, he firmly believed that no man should own another man, but he did never. He was unequivocal in his belief that we were not equal. So this is from, I'm going to read, I'm going to take the time to read this in its totality, because although I think the author of All Boys Are Not Blue did a really good job in integrating this into his narrative, I think I gained more from it when I read this debate in its totality. Those inflammatory statements were made at the beginning of the Lincoln-Douglas debates from September 18, 1858. And the, the point of the debate was um, the constitutionality of bringing Kansas into the union. He was asked earlier, he addressed it up top, and he said, and that's all I got to say on that. He was very Forrest Gump about it. And also he was doing, wait a minute. I produce, I repeat my charge that Trumbull did falsify the public records of the country in order to make his charge against me and I tell, has this day endorse that he didn't, but he kind of did. So plagiarism, some convention bullshit, but okay. Anyways, they were having a debate of, of what I said previously but here it is, Mr. Lincoln's portion. He says, it will be very difficult for an audience so large as this to hear distinctly what the speaker says. So consequently, it's important that a, as profound silence be preserved as possible. 
While I was at the hotel today, this is Lincoln, y'all, an elderly gentleman called upon me to know whether I was really in favor of producing a perfect equality between the Negroes and the white people. While I had not proposed myself on this occasion to say much on that subject, yet as the question was asked me, I thought I would occupy perhaps five minutes in saying something in regard to it. I will say then that I am not, nor ever have been, in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races. He goes on to say that, my understanding is that I can just let her alone. I am in my 50th year. I've never had any slaves or wives of Negroes. I will add to this that I have never seen to my knowledge, a man or woman or child who was in favor of producing perfect equality, social, political, between Negroes and white men. I've, and he says he doesn't want to own slaves, thinks it's wrong to own slaves, and, but that doesn't mean that we are equal in any way. I had never heard this, but I was easily able to pull this up from the Teaching American History website. And again, the point of the debate was the falsification of rec public record as it was for bringing Kansas into the union. He basically goes on to say that anything, he saw slavery as a disruption to the union or the union of the United States. He, it needed to end. One, it was wrong. It needed to end. And that's how we were going to keep the union together. However, he says, you, I'm in no way of thinking that we were equal. So what did he propose to do with us then? That's my question. So where were we supposed to go? I think if he had actually lived, um, there would have been a repatriation to us in Africa, or we would have been kicked out and made to go to Haiti or some other uh, country. I don't think it would have been safe for us to remain here. I think we would have been exported back to where our origins were. Not, and it would have just been as disruptive as slavery was. And when they broke up our families, when they worked us to death, when they starved us to death, and when they tortured us. He did not believe in intermarriage. He believed in the absolute supremacy of white folks. He thought that white men were equal, but said nothing of women. And it was not that he wanted to give us women the vote. These are all this racist, white supremacist stance, because he was the epitome of the old grand party, the Republicans. He was the grandmaster. He was the original Klan leader right there. Abraham Lincoln, I would project or project that he was the original first low-key grand wizard, um, head of the old grand party, and these ideas are still firmly Republican. That's why I still to this day can't understand why any African-American is a Republican. This is what this party, the basis of this party is based on white supremacy, anti-mixed marriage, and only equality for white men.
Um, they are misogynist and they are bigoted and there's no place for any other in that party. And it's just so, he was looked at as a white savior, but he could care less about our stance, our equality. But he had no, once he freed us, what was supposed to happen to us? That's what I'm going to not only uh, continue to read, because that was one of the main themes um, that I wanted to talk about this week as far as all boys are not are blue. But I'm also going, and I'm going to make the general effort to see if he had a plan for us. Really, once, we're, once we were free, and we, but we were not equal, what was his proposition? Where were we supposed to go? If we couldn't stay, if we were not equal to the other citizens, or we weren't even considered citizens, where were we supposed to do? How were we supposed to live after we were free? And did Abe Lincoln and his cronies have a plan? I'm not sure. Butterfly in the sky. I can go twice as high. Take a look. It's in a book. A reading tin for I can go anywhere. Friends to know. Ways to grow. A reading tin So Sunday to me is the New York Times. Uh, it was the style section, and then now it's uh, mostly the book review and the arts and leisure section. This week, I got a two for for additions to my Far From Bill Street bookstore. Navigate to bookshop.org or type in Far From Bill Street bookshop, and you'll have access to my online store. Or just navigate to my Dell's Angels Inc. blog, and you can actually uh, order the book, which is usually cheaper on Amazon. Um, and to get these two editions. Um, the two from speaking of is um, Colson Whitehead's Crook Manifesto. He dazzled us with the Nickel Boys, uh, and he also with the best-selling author of Harlem Shuffle. And this time he returns back to the 1970s New York in all of its seedy glory, which I think is wild because this year marked the 50th anniversary that Yoko Ono um, also uh, made the, her and John Lennon made this apartment building a classic and she actually has lived there for over 50 years this year, which I think is wild. Um, she has, evidently she has five apartments which they use for living space, a studio and storage. And just the living space in the studio comprises about 6,000 square feet, which is double the size of my actual house. And she has that in her apartment space. That blows my mind. But anywho, this harkens back 
um, to that time. And one of the main uh, protagonists, um, Ray Carney, in his new legit business as a furniture store, goes down the rabbit hole of intrigue and uh, what do they call the stooge, the three stooges like capers um, to get his daughter uh, tickets to the Jackson Five. You got a uh, a dirty beat cop, white at that, and just in time for the bicentennial celebration, where literally New York City is on fire. Um, check this out. Um, it is twenty six ninety seven on my website. I believe it's a definitely less than that, and that's the hardback hardcover uh, price. But it'll be cheaper than that on Amazon. So check it out and let me know what you think as well as A History of African Americans Abroad, Beyond the Shores by Tamara J. Walker. I think this book is gonna be dope because I've been toying around with Blacksit for many years. I had Noelle Ojo on the show and she talked about the Blacksit effect. And this is a compilation of biographies of several African-Americans that may have made the trek across the pond in different areas of the world. Um, and Paris um, is one of those places where a lot of us end up, uh, have end up like the James Baldwin's of the world. Um, even when we are overseas, the, our, it seems like racism and white supremacy follows us. I mean, each England and America from a capitalist standpoint have in colony, colonization and imperialism have made their effects on how a lot of the socioeconomics status and through wars and through the perception, they take on the American, uh, they want the American dream, but they also take on the American prejudice as it is relates to African-Americans. And sometimes we have to still overcome American racism or the white supremacy and it's glaring and it's microaggressions, et cetera, all overseas. We leave to escape it, but we run head right on into it. Um, and I think Tamara Walker um, does a, a very good job or an amazing job of, uh, as far as who, when they profiled her, Chad Williams profiled her, in the New York Times book review, but she does amazing job of our search for identity and those things that still plague us here in America. And if you try to do that and escape it, you're gonna run head on into it. I think that's basically the point of her, um, her work. Um, so check that out. It's listed for a whopping 2604, the hardcover, um, on my website, but I'm sure it's cheaper on Amazon. So check out the link um, to um, Amazon um, and then let me know what you think. What else I got going on? Oh, the next segment I'm going to be talking at length with uh, Kathy Nichols. She is a podcaster of, of one of the contributing co-hosts of Wild Women Who Write, and she is an author, four-time author of The Substitute Sister, Trust Issues, 
the unreliable and the sometimes sister. I'm planning on, I'm thinking about starting with trust issues uh, because the sometimes sister, the unreliable and the substitute sister are all, I be, they are like almost a trifecta of perfection and a mystery. Um, but, and it's around a central character that's reoccurring in those three. But trust issues, which was released back in also in 2022, this is about a rising star in a prominent Atlanta public relations firm who can fix anything except for herself. That's Claire Kincaid. And she shows up at a couple's workout, uh, workshop without a partner. And then Kevin Thomas swoops in and rescues her from humiliation by posing as her fiance. I find that intriguing, but why do you show up at a couple's workshop and you ain't with nobody? That to me is hysterical. Um, if I can get the link, it's available on paperback on my um, website or the electronic bookstore. But if I can actually get this, I think it's going to be a jolly good read. And also, it's a great introduction into uh, the incredulity as well as how fascinating I found her um, in the next session as I um, interview you and you guys get to know her as well. So um, check out uh, this book, Trust Issues, by Catherine Nichols. Um, and you'll hear more from her, the author, directly in this next section. So good afternoon, everyone. I have the pleasure um, of talking to, I'm going to call you my very good friend. I like it. <laughs> Kathy Nichols of, uh, what is it, Wild Women That Write? Wild Women Who Write. <laughs> Wild Women Who Write podcast. And um, we're we're really close neighbors in the South. If you're within 150 miles, you're neighbors. So I'm just saying. So Kathy, can you go ahead and introduce yourself to the listening audience? Yes, I'm Kathy Nichols. I spent over 30 years in the high school classroom teaching English. I came to writing novels a little bit later in life. I've had four novels published with the fifth one coming. And I write about strong women. I believe in strong women. And I believe that it's going to be through recognizing our strength as women that we can communicate better across color lines is what I'm hoping. Awesome. Now, this is a, a, a honest, a bash it plug for your books. Um, mm -hmm. You've written four novels. Are they in sequence or is there one of yours? I'm going to recommend that you read all of them. But is there one that um, the listeners should start with? If you start with the sometime sister, I wrote it uh, to be a standalone, but my characters were not done with me. So between the sometime sister and the sequel, which is the substitute sister, I wrote two standalones. I would start with the sometime sister because I think you'll want to read the sequel. And then I hope you'll go to my standalones, trust issues and the unreliables. Awesome. As well as now, are you able or do you like or do you think it's superstitious to talk about what you're working on next? 
Oh no, I'll talk about anything. I well, love, uh, I'm, I'm working, actually the book that's coming out in September is called False Claims. And it's the first of a planned series. Uh, Lucy Howard is not an amateur detective, but she gets pulled into things. She has a very colorful Southern type family, although I'm sure Northern people have the same issues. I think it was Julia Sugarbaker on uh, Designing Women who said, we like to put our crazy, Northern people put their uh, crazy people in the attic. We like to bring ours to the parlor. Right, in the parlor on the front porch. Exactly, and 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 show them to the world. So exactly. I have in it uh, a narcoleptic uh, gay uncle. I have his delightful, uh, very strong, country music playing and rock playing partner and they will get married eventually I have some very uh shady shady men shady characters uh slip it up of identity all sorts of fun things and my next one that I'm planning will be a uh, second in the series you could read them in either order that's awesome and when can we expect that false claims comes out November I mean excuse me September 9th of the 2023 or 2024. Yeah, yeah, soon. That's awesome. <laughs> okay, and also, how did we actually connect? Well, I've been urging people who want to get their message out to take a look at matchmaker.fm.com. You need that FM in there or you'll get all kinds of fun things that you may not be interested in. So I found Felicia and I was reading and she lives near Chattanooga. You're not, are you in, or are you on the border? I actually am in, I'm on the border of Hamilton County, but I'm in what is called the North Shore of Chattanooga. Gotcha. And my brother was very close to you. He's a musician in Chattanooga. And I just love the things you were saying. I loved it. You said, I have whoever and whatever I want on my podcast. And I said, yes, that's what we should be doing. If it's not fun, don't do it. If you don't like the people you're talking to, move on. Don't talk to them. And if, and if it's not going to offer, I I use I want to use my platform not just for positivity, but also, and it's my unvarnished opinion on things and what I'm interested in. But I'm hopeful it'll serve as either encouragement or for someone else to do more with what they're doing, or to get more people buying their books to after I read them. That is what I want the platform to be. I mean, I started this podcast simply because I was in the armpit of Kentucky and I got tired of being profiled. I wouldn't go out at night. So, and I read books and then I found out there are other podcasters that are doing exactly what I do. And, but I wanted to do it better. And then I'm saying, oh, this platform like this. Oh, well, this is how you can do it. Oh, I have a computer. Record podcast so you can record on your phone. It was just that simple. And there was nothing on TV at that time. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I, what we did with Wild Women Who Write, we started as a critique group. We supported each other. We also were members of uh, a heterosexual critique group. And we loved the opinions of men. But we very quickly came to understand, particularly me, I get so frustrated when men try to write women and they won't listen to women who are explaining to them a woman would never say that. And you get these responses like, well, all women are alike. I'm like, I know this. I'm not a moron, you know, but it's it's very difficult. So we we did both for a while and now I've moved and it's difficult. But it was so cool because as women supporting each other, three of us got published. 
we and wow. and we we continue to write and we continue to do this. That's why we started the podcast to encourage other female authors. We have men too. So you basically through the podcast actually was published through traditional means or did you go the indie route like I did, which I think is a waste of time. That's a whole different conversation right there. I was able to get, I had an agent, didn't work out, won't go into that, but we had an amicable breakup and I thought, well, I guess I'll try that again. And then I was so lucky. I saw in Writer's Digest magazine, the top five independent publishers who did not require an agent. And so I just went online and submitted uh, my novel, uh, The Sometime Sister. And they said it sometimes takes six weeks to three months. They contacted me in two weeks. I was so excited and I've been very pleased. It's Black Rose writing. They have a... um, brick and mortar outfit in Castroville, Texas. But we, of course, communicated through the internet and, you know, email. So I've been very happy with them. Their covers are cool. Publishing independently is so hard. I would have done it. I would have waited as long as possible, but it's so hard. The editing, if you don't, I'm a good editor, but if I'm going independently, I feel like I should have paid for it. And you pay for the cover design. And so it's not that I have anything against independent publishers. I will say some people don't do it well. And they give the rest of you guys who do it well, they do give a bad name to it. And, and people are, are steer away from it because of that, which is a shame because some of it is wonderful. Um, Some of it, it depends on you get the right setup um, as an indie author, um, maybe one or two a year actually have or they have they end up um, being received well on the New York Times they're very few and far between I went through author house and I can tell the package a lot of the upfront costs and some of the service that you pay for are not needed um, and it can it's cost prohibitive to do it and I think you get jacked you get really jacked around as far as that um, knowing what I know now I, if I had known because I now get Writer's Digest and other, there are other reputable independent um, uh, publishing and there's a, just a different way. I would not have published Not My Family the way that I had it published. I'm glad I got the copyrights. I own that. So, because that's another thing when you are indie and independent, the Vanity Press may still own though, but I own it. So at least, at okay. least I can yes. go somewhere else and um and take my book somewhere else and republish it if I so chose. So and I had to learn all of that. Um, yeah, it's, it's a steep learning curve. Or non-payment, it's really difficult um to make it as an indie author, um self-published author, um because there's so many scandals and things like that. So, but I'm so glad personally that we were able to connect on Matchmaker. Um, I actually found it by, you know, wanting to take my podcast and to another level. I found out that I got more traction with those um, um, episodes that I was, it wasn't just me and Ethel or me yelling at Ethel, <laughs> even though right. that was funny, you know, comment that was kind of funny, but I found that I can expand my knowledge and just the interconnection with people um, if I did interviews. And the most successful podcasts are when there's a host and co-host or when it's like an interview kind of format. So I wanted to mix it up with 
other creatives like myself, other podcast hosts, and just people in general that, again, have the same interests as me and have the same issues or what are, or what are our challenges in this space. And being in the South now has become not safe. And I'm and how I'm gonna put how I'm gonna quantify that is for a lot of different reasons. I am fifth I'll be 52 this August, and I've lived in the South all of my life. I've worked all over the United States. And it really wasn't until when I started the podcast at the beginning of the Chump administration <laughs> i have never felt in my space and my skin unsafe um and the reason why i feel unsafe i call us the piano keys this is going to be the piano key series i'm an african-american middle-aged woman i am firmly upper middle class i have but i still have a big old bubba truck you can't see it in the background but it's around there um i oh it's on my profile i think i Put the picture up when I first uh, bought it home from Texas. So and and, but I'm I, I'm literally a punk. I'm not allergic to bugs. I was just telling you before we started. I have my raid because I don't like being stung. Because I don't like pain. Um, but I literally still, even with my education, even with my bubble truck, uh, even with being my salary, whatever, I still feel completely unsafe in my own skin in certain conditions. Tennessee had been better for a while until some drama that's recently happened. Also, now the NAACP this year put out a warning to deter African-Americans from going to Florida. Um, and there is a whole slew of things, an anti-woke campaign, um, uh, turning back the clock as far as, um, what is it? Uh, uh, the laws that make you treat people correctly, affirmative action, more so with Roe v. Wade, that being that turned over, um, the January 6th riot, one of the, uh, Superior Court judges, his wife, um, Jenny, may have participated in that. I am, I have a lot of concerns and I think that make me feel unsafe. And where does it stem from? Now we can't even, we they calling uh, sensibility training now reverse racism. Um, they don't want you to say gay. They don't want you to talk about the actual slavery. They don't want you to talk about racism. And they're rolling back as a teacher. I would, a history, I would actually be annoyed if I was in an AP class and I could not get a real history, an unvarnished real history. And that's where I think we picked up on. And that's why we're doing this series. And it all stems from Florida. You were talking about not being able to want to go down there and retire. I like any state where I don't have, a, uh, you know, no income, state income tax. I love the Florida beaches. I love Destin. I love the coast. I love the Gulf. I love Atlantic. However, I'm not going because I don't feel safe because we got Florida man's defurer in there. Go. <laughs> and why? Yeah, I... 
I'm so oh, angry because I have so many wonderful memories of going to the beach as a child and taking my children to the beach. And I went recently only because it was part of a big family thing. And I hated spending money there, which is sad because, you know, there are people there who don't feel the way, I don't even like to say his name, I think it's like Baltimore, but don't feel like their governor feels, but they don't, they're, they don't, they don't speak up a lot of times. And a lot of times they don't speak up because I don't know why. I really don't know why they don't speak up. I think sometimes when people are afraid to speak up and they do, they find out, oh, that wasn't so bad. Nothing happened. But it's so frustrating and frightening because we don't really know how it, well, I do know how it got started. It was our former president, the twice impeached, multiply indicted former president. And his, the problem was he made it okay to say things out loud that people were still thinking, but they knew it was wrong to feel that way. They knew right. in their heart it was wrong because otherwise they would have been saying it, but he gave them permission and an excuse and an example of how to be horrible. And then the governor of Florida decided to take that to its extreme limits. It's totally backfiring on him. People don't like him. He doesn't, I don't think, I don't know how people say, like you said, Trump. I don't know how he had any charisma. I never understood it. He was just gross. But for some people, he struck a chord. De DeSantis doesn't strike that chord. No. He's, he comes across as being mean and spiteful and petty. And even if you like his horrible policies, you can't really get into him. So he's, he's not going to make it. And I don't it's, really. It's like Chump released the Kraken. You you hit yes. it on the head. He made it okay to say horrible things and to be horrible, but but DeSantis has taken it again to the extreme, and he does, and he's not doing it charismatically because he's basically. It's like his whole campaign is devolving into a big, crusty mess. Does that make yes. sense? Oh yeah. And also the state is becoming a mess. The people can't get their homes insured. And as governor, he should have been doing something about that. He didn't, he could have, uh, you know, the Disney thing is a mess. Um, they, they, they are, if they continue to shut down new businesses, new resort areas, there's so many people who are gonna suffer with no jobs. And, and this business of the schools, oh my God, if my child, if I was in Florida and the public schools, I would do, or private, I would do whatever I could to get out of that state because I taught AP English and I taught the one that was more about um, editorials and nonfiction. You can't deal with anything if you don't deal with implicit bias, with the fact that women have been condescended to black women they don't even register on the chart it's just so unfair and i feel as a as a white woman i haven't done enough to say that's not right although i'm pretty good at saying no that's not right do you but feel like yourself like the lone wolf howling in the wind sometimes not as often as you'd think, because I am surrounded by a lot of like-minded people and the people who are not like-minded 
they know what I think and they know I'm not going to sit quietly and go, well, I'm, that doesn't affect me. So I'm not going to talk about it. And like the critical race theory crap. Mm -hmm. I mean, people for some reason think that that's a safe topic. It's like a code. Are you racist? And that's exactly what it is. It's like people will say, well, how do you feel about critical race theory? I'll say, and you're like, well, I don't know, because I don't know what it is. I don't understand it. I I'm looked not it a lawyer. Up. It is not for me. I personally, I don't understand it. So I looked it up and I thought, I'm going to understand this enough to say the five tenets of it. I can't even remember them. And I'm very smart. I said, there is no way in hell anybody could be teaching this anywhere in grades even it's a postgraduate course right. so people don't know what it is and to me it is exactly a code a code to but it's like a dog a, like a dog whistle um to uh people that are racist and that are bigoted because they they don't understand what it is so that means nobody can teach it but it's not it's just we should be able to teach it it's just not for us graduate level it's a four thousand level course graduate level course let it stay in the graduate level and you basically banning it high school okay fine but it's there but it's not for a high schooler it's not for an undergraduate student and it's okay but you shouldn't ban it across the board it, but that exactly. should not also be because that's not what the 1619 project is about you can't ban everything <laughs> that talks about in our history previous like civil war previous to the civil war it, you can't ban that based on using that as a as it relates to something else it's, and, it's literally whitewashing history literally and we can't do that um i do, i will i believe and i hope it will happen faster than some trends do i do believe that this is going to be one of those things at some point where people go what the hell? What are we thinking? My gratitude is to matchmaker.fm, the online platonic uh, collaboration or connections for creatives. Um, I'm glad for them to be able to allow me to connect to interesting people like Carl Swanepoel. He's actually the CEO and creator uh, behind Revelancer. Um, young guy, complete millennial. Started his first business at 13, uh, a collaborative uh, platform that he would eventually sell for a profit. And he's done it again with this platform, Revelancer. Although I'm not I was not as familiar with this particular platform pre prior, but it is a way to actually, it's different than Fiverr, where you sign up for free and then you basically match your, can match your skill set with the needs of someone else. Revelancer just, acts as a go a free go-between platform. Um, it seems like it's free, completely free right now. Somehow on the back end for continued services and for more um, advanced services, they've decided that they would monetize it. I'm more interested in how do you get financing for 
uh, something that is so free um, for freelancers. It allows you to not have so many upfront costs um, to get established with graphic design, uh, coding, etc., on the front end, and you don't pay them a fee. I mean, it is completely free, y'all. Navigate to revlancer.com, check it out, get signed up, um, and then let me know how it goes. But in our conversation, he introduces the audience to this revolutionary platform for freelancers. And I think you'll enjoy first this part, as far as part one, um, which has been edited for time, and, and I will continue it next week um, in the rest of it for completion, um, so you'll get a better understanding of this service. And here he is, the youngest boss I've met in a very long time, Carl Swanepoel. <laughs> oh, mind blown. But go ahead. Well, I, I started with um, graphic design and web development, which I, I kind of taught myself um, using some YouTube videos and, and whatnot. Um, and then, you know, kind, kind of scaled up from there, realized quite quickly that these platforms just weren't really working the way I wanted them to. I didn't think they were working very well for freelancers, like didn't have freelancers' best interest at heart. Mm -hmm. So that's when I decided when I was 15 to start a freelancing platform. Um, which I ended up having to sell because I was too young to have a PayPal account and they kept kicking me off. <laughs> so you were aged out of PayPal, so you couldn't get paid because you were too young. Oh my gosh, because you could enter into a contract. Oh, that's crazy. Oh, that is hysterical. Well, it's, it's, it, it's actually a bit worse because essentially um, buyer, so buyers were paying into the PayPal accounts. The majority of the money going into the PayPal accounts was actually belonging to the freelancer. So, you know, I was taking a small commission fee, but the rest was going to the freelancer. So, um, you know, it, it was, I mean, I managed to pay everyone, but it was getting very close. And, and then, you know, fortunately, I was able to find someone who was willing to buy the platform from me. Um, okay. So I sold that just before I turned 16. Um, and then, you know, worked on a few more different projects, went to university. And then halfway through my final year, I realized, like, you know, it's been eight years since I started freelancing or so. These big platforms simply have not changed anything since you know in those eight years. Mm -hmm. um, we have we were like in the middle of a pandemic then, or like you know we were still in a lockdown in, in the UK at the time, mm -hmm. um, and that's changed how we work remotely with video calling, for example. Um, so then I thought, you know, well, I'm I'm older than eighteen now, so um, I want to really have a shot at building, um, you know, a freelancing platform that really changes the whole space for the better. Um, and that's kind of where I, I got started then um, in early 2021. And so 2021, and then you had your successful financing round when was that 2021 or 2022? Um, we've, we've raised uh, kind of a few different um, kind of, yeah, rounds or like, like pots of funding um, starting in uh, like November of 2021. That's when we raised our, our first VC funding. And it, and the difference between again, the all the big platforms, previous platforms, um, are monetized, but they have not changed their way of offering a true service to the true freelancer. Um, and your platform is such that one, it's not monetized at this point, um, and then two, 
is there a um, industry that Revlancer is key at this time, or is it all takers and everyone? Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's mainly kind of creative um, freelancers. So, you know, we see mostly like graphic design, um, web development, media and marketing. Those are kind of the main four, but it, it absolutely spans further than, than that as well. Um, yeah. And you, and by no means, you are not an agency. Um, you're not an employment agency like Indeed or any of those others. And definitely not Fiverr because there are no upfront or even at this time back in fees. So it is completely a free service in a marketplace for the uh, producer as well as the recipient to get together to, co to collaborate without you guys, because you're not the middleman. You, pro you provide the platform, but, you have, but you're really not the, the middleman at this time. You just basically foster communication. Is that correct? Is that, or that yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, and if you are able to talk about it, what are some KPIs that this is a successful platform? What um, should investors um, look for as far as why is it successful? Why, is it more, why shouldn't it be more successful that besides the growth of user growth? What other things besides user growth are, should investors or our investors should look for? No, well, we have extremely good in engagement, um, but just, you know, putting that aside, um, one thing, probably the main thing that is, is, you know, impressed about our platform is that freelancers like the product to the point where they will tell other freelancers about it. And that's very much, you know, it's, it, that's exactly what, what we're trying to do. And we're constantly improving at, at that as well. Um, but ultimately, my, my philosophy is that, you know, at, at its core, the product has to be so good for the target audience that they will, um, without even thinking about it, you know, tell other freelancers about it and recommend the platform. And then if we have that going, you know, then then we can um, do all kinds of paid advertising and so on just to kind of pour fuel on the fire. But you need that at, at its core to actually build a, a you know, really successful platform. Okay. And my core audience is female. It's female-leaning. 45 to 55, are there certain type of freelancers that you see um, that have the biggest success on your platform? I'm sure. I mean, I wouldn't know, like, off the top of my head for, for that particular demographic, like, um, you know, what kind of free, you know, what kind of freelance services have the most success on, on the platform. Um, but just speaking generally, uh, it's, it really comes down to um, you know, graphic design, web development, media, and marketing, those, those kind of four key ones. But um, there are also plenty of freelancers seeing great success in more kind of niche um, industries as well. So yeah, I mean, our, our platform is, is growing quite, quite fast um, at the moment, you know, and I very much um, expect it to continue to do so. So um, you know, every day there are plenty more people who will be um, interested in, in what you do on there. So awesome. Give us the website of, um, if we would just want to look around and check out and sign up for Revelancer, where can we go? Yeah, so you just go to revelancer.com or, or Google it and it will come up. And awesome. And where would you personally like to be found on social media or even email address if it, you possibly would like to give that for additional questions or for any follow-up information? 
So yeah, I mean, my my um, an email address where you can reach me at is is on my personal website. So if you just Google my name, it'll come up. Um, and the best place to connect with me outside of that is is on LinkedIn. Um, so again, just Carl Swanepoel on LinkedIn, and and I'll be there. I actually followed you, and I'm following Revelancer, and it's been it's really a pleasure again um, for you to basically take the time out of your busy day um, to talk to a nerd like me in the U.S. Um, and that's the other thing. You're in the U.K. right now, is that correct? Yes, I am. Yep, and I'm sitting here in my house in Chattanooga, Tennessee. When technology works, it works great. And I think just the idea of learning about new services that, from an international standpoint, for creatives like me, knowing about these services, you know, to expand into brand, that is what how I see usage for um, the just the average Joe, you know, here in the United States, being able to access a source like Revelancer. So I'm very glad to be able to bring this information to the audience. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. And, and I hope this has been useful. Awesome. The Shade Bunch, the Shade Bunch. I hope turning up for checks to pay for fake lifestyles were to be a part of the Shady Bunch. So what's going on in the popular culture zeitgeist? Rest in power to Catherine Burks Brooks, one of the last Freedom Riders. She had the last word and she passed away today in Birmingham. At the age of 21, as a freedom rider, she was, <laughs> of course she's from Nashville, because Tennessee rocks for black folks. And she went back to desegregate public transportation in the South. The first attempt was defeated by violence because she went up, posted up against Bull Connor, the bigoted public safety commissioner of Birmingham. And that's where she passed away from heart failure. She, what trips me out is 15 years prior to 1961 when the Freedom Rides were going or restarted, the Supreme Court had already ruled that segregated seating on interstate buses and trains was unconstitutional. Yet the Southern states was like, well, we don't believe that. And they're doing the crap again. And in Alabama, the Supreme Court said the gerrymandered voting precincts was unconstitutional. And they basically saying, well, we don't believe that. Freaking Republicans doing what they do most. They cheat, they scheme, they try to keep uh, African-Americans and people of color behind the colored line because they're white supremacists. And that's the whole premise of that party. And she, the original boss chick, the original influencer who rolled up, uh, even when the Klan came up against them with iron pipes and chains and baseball bats. She was like, nah, son, you're basically in violation of federal law. And they basically went, dialed it back 
And then with SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinated Committee, because I had James Farmer, was one of my professors. I still have his book somewhere. And she came back with them and basically was like, you know, she's like, you know, we're going to have to do this because it was in our rights. We don't have to sit in the back of the bus. We Y'all need to take those colored signs down and keep it pushing because Jim Crow has flown away. So, and there you have it. It's really dope when you have someone like her that stand up to bullies. And I find it in within myself, um, it's honorable that she's from my state, from Nashville, it did it worked in that arena for most of the totality of her life. So big ups to Miss Burks. And I go from righteous to ratchet. <laughs> Real Housewives of Atlanta. I found the after show is very informative because I have, in, especially in the last episode of the after show, that some of the stars of the series, they basically feel just as confused as I am. Most of them think that Drew is fake. They let the cat out of the bag about, even though it appears that they haven't had any special tapings because since Drew's and Ralph's divorce has fallen apart, I think we're going to get the deets in the after show without them having to re-record a whole bunch of ish. Now they're in Portugal and Kenya has literally busted her ass. She it was it's been raining like every single day. And I remember y'all remember when the girls from uh, Real Housewives of Potomac went to Portugal and they had puncha, puncha, puncha. So why don't they go to the puncha place? And they're just at the wrong uh, time of year. They are in Portugal during the rainy season. At least they're not there during protests because that's what's the issue with Barcelona in the previous seasons. But anyways... And I also think that the reality of this show is you got one of the fakest, most selfish housewives, Sherry Whit Sherry White, aka Sheree Whitfield, on a healing quest for herself, and she's dragging her friends along with it. This Courtney chick, I still don't understand her even being a friend of the show. Why is she so thirsty? I guess because if you're not in a scene, they evidently they don't get paid. But she makes Moneta turn up, who seems to be one of the nicest people on the planet. So, wow. Good luck with that. And I just can't stand Marlo just poking and poking and poking and going below the belt and her over-the-top quote-unquote fashions, it just drives me crazy. But I'm here for the food, I'm here for the drinks, and I'm wondering whose ass is going to get beat because they all getting on my nerves a little bit. But I also am really sorry for Kenya Moore and her falling down 
either she must have either pulled something or blew out something. Um, her, what do you least call a blow up booty? Didn't cushion her fall because she fell and bit it and it was not cute. Okay, so I watch most all of the franchise of Real Housewives. Bravo gets a lot of my time and this is no different. I was watching Lauren Lake, attorney of the court, when I turned it on to the Real Housewives Ultimate Girls Trip. I landed on, I was like, why is Cynthia and Kenya on Ultimate Girls Trip? I'm referring to season one, episode seven, Go Big Before You Go Home. I had no idea that number one, either one of them was on this series. Also, I did not know that they fell out. Uh, Cynthia's in the confessional, is talking about the group dynamics and how she gives and gives and gives. And she came and on the trip, but then she didn't get the same ride or die back from Cynthia. This is from a few years ago. I wonder if this was when they fell out kind of on the show when she was like, well, at the time, Kenya and her messy ass basically was like, well, I should know because she's my best friend. And then Cynthia, when Nene came back, she was like, well, we're working towards that. We're close, but she's not my BFF like Nene and them were. So now she is maybe after that, this is when they she revealed that on Real Housewives of Atlanta. So this was Kenya's messy way of getting her back. I'm interested in finding out, was this also when, right before, I don't think, no, she's not married yet because she ended up giving some prize from the Bailey Bowl to um, Teresa Gudice. Because Teresa is not married yet. She's only started... She's just gotten out of jail and she just started dating her current husband. Um, and and also, this is way before. Yeah, because she is not until like, what, season 10 or season 11 when Kenya secretly married Mark Daly. And because she's not dating anyone on while she's on season one of Real Housewives ultimate girls trip so this is probably around that time when cynthia forsake her so okay good luck with that maybe she was still or it was the aftermath after or right before matt but it was in the in-between time when it was up in the air and she was completely offended by cynthia's lack of um fealty to her so now on another while they're taping uh, the housewives girl trip. Now she's trying to serve a platter of mess and it's best served hot with hot tea because that's what's going on. Really, Drew? Really? So you make out with Latoya, get turned out, and 
get found out because Candace outs you and and Ty Young. And you get caught up in Ty Young's affair with her because you lie worse than Portia Williams' Gabadia did. And you ain't good at it, girl. That's why you be making me mad because you just be lying to me. Just be lying. I left my heart in San Francisco. Was it New York? You remember when Bookman sung that on Good Times? have to find that to be to put as the first part of this episode because that was hysterically funny and I'm watching Real Housewives of New York and I'm thoroughly enjoying it for whatever reason I okay let me stop lying I hated the first iteration because I thought even when they added the black girl I thought that all of them were stupid, vapid, and fake. Bethany Frankel, she was the lead faker, even with skinny girls. Now, don't get me wrong. I think all these bitches on this season all got eating disorders. But how you go to the Hamptons, Sac Harbor in particular, off-season, and <laughs> all you serve is caviar beluga of course on pringles girl really that's why uma who is giving me super five super star kenya moore naomi campbell all wrapped into one hangry vibes oh my god erin whose house they go to she got 800 kids and she's still skinny as a rail because all she eats is a half a carry every day. Girl, I can't. I don't even know what the other woman of color. This is a lot. This is probably one of the most representative of New York high society or just New York in general. Because there's literally three women of color. I think she is Hispanic or Latino. I don't know her name. But there is Uba, who is probably from the motherland, and she is fabulous. And then there is Jenna, the token lesbianum. And, oh, Jessel. Jessel is giving me pent-up bitch vibes. And you remember on, oh, what's his name, with, um, Oh, Raj, Big Bang Theory. Raj was going to marry or get with that girl who was actually gay. Jessel and her husband, who she has not slept with in two years. Girl, bye. They are giving me beard and gay vibes. What man is not going to sleep with you and he ain't cheating on you? I just, maybe he really loves you and y'all got this great relationship. Oh, no, and they don't use toys. There ain't no bedroom candy up in that bitch. I can't. I'm so tired of her already. She's making my head hurt. But everybody, even Jenna Lyons, who won't reveal who she is in a relationship with, 
all of them start out as fabulously wealthy and married. Brynn is not there yet, but she is coming off as the quintessential airhead, fabulously rich socialite, but she ain't that stupid. So I'm going to have to seek her out and find out her why she seems to be so fabulous to me. But all of them are seen to be fabulous. I think Erin is kind of pent up, Jewish girl. She's having to reconcile her Judaism and orthodoxness with the nonsense that is this show. And I think she's going to do it. We're going to be in for some great TV watching. I think Jenna's going to let down her on the spectrum self and where she's going to find her true self. I didn't know she was outed by the New York. Did she say the New York Post? Who does that and gets away with it? Oh, I'm here for these hoes. And I think I'm going to have to put them on my watch list. I like reviewing them. I don't think anybody else. There's no after show that I know of yet. But I'm here for the craziness. I'm so glad they rebooted this show and they picked these set of women. Because we are in for another new season and seasons to come of nonsense. If you need to turn tune out off of your mundane regular life and you want fabulous New York other other worldly life and people before the tax dues and the, all the alphabets and the federal government come back to them for not paying taxes and some Rico shit. Y'all need to watch Real Housewives of New York because this is promising to be the wild ride of the century. And I am so here for it. It almost made me want to start getting knee injections, lose weight on an Ozempic so I can go to BravoCon so I can meet these hoes. But I ain't fit to do any of that, so stop it. And that's it for this episode of Tenfro is Reading. You know, I talked cash-ish all last year. I hope the listening audience will continue to enjoy my opinion and not so subtle shade. I mean, I'm 2,000 listeners per episode in, so go run tell that haters. I may take it on the road if I get hint hint sponsorship. Navigate to dalesangelsinc.blog for swag and extended podcast notes. Don't forget to hit like or leave a five-star review. It gets me on top of the algorithms and it may just get you on my show. 2023's motto is boss up and get the bag. And as always, tell a friend and thank you for listening.